In the beginning of January, we started a series that we're calling The Genius of Genesis, and we've been working our way very slowly through Genesis chapter 1. Now, the idea behind that was that there are several principles that are laid out in the opening chapter of the Bible that if we embrace them and if we understand them, that give us a framework for understanding God, for understanding the rest of the Bible, but also for understanding our world and where we fit within this world. So we're going back to Genesis again, chapter 1. Our passage this morning is Genesis 1, 14 to 25. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us through the extreme cold of the last few days, reminding us that the sun shines when we got up this morning. Thank you for all the seasons that we enjoy here in this part of the land. Thank you even for winter. Thank you for the stillness of the cold days. Thank you for the reminder that warmer days are around the horizon. Thank you for the change that we experience. We are grateful for all that you've provided for us in this world. This morning when we got up, the sun was shining, we had air to breathe, we had roofs over our heads. You've given us so much, so much that allows us to live life and to enjoy, and you are truly a good God. Thank you for the ways that you meet us in the challenging times of life. You don't take them all away, but you do transform them when we approach them with faith and we we invite you to lead our lives day by day. Grant each one of us here the strength that we need for the challenges of this week, whether that means going through chemotherapy or whether that means uh, taking on a difficult challenge at work. We pray that you give us wisdom in the way that we raise our kids or grandkids. We pray that you will give us the kind of insight that we need to do our jobs well. 
We pray that you'll give us a graciousness and a warmth in the way that we live out our faith before our families and our friends and our neighbors. Cause them to have questions that we can point to how you've shown us answers. Cause them to see something in us that reflects the light of your love, your grace, your leadership in our lives. We pray that you'll continue to draw many people in our region to Jesus, to his grace. Lord, you know everybody here in, in this room today and those who are watching online, you know where we struggle, where we've fallen this week. We pray that you will pick us up when we fall. We pray that you will forgive our sins when we fall into the same traps again and that you will give us a renewed discipline to live even more in your light and to take the next step more faithfully than the last one. Lord, as we welcome people who are new to this congregation week after week, Help them to find a place where they can fit in. We pray that you will also answer the questions that they have deep down and that you will meet their needs. Now we ask that you will guide us as we try to understand a bit more of the principles that you've laid out for us here in Genesis chapter 1. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have a confession to make as we start this message today. Over the 30-plus years of North River's history, our various worship leaders have introduced a number of praise songs that focus on the concept of God's goodness. Here's the confession. I have struggled with several of them. <laughs> I am fully aware that Sunday mornings at North River are not all about me and they're not for me alone, but bear with me for a moment as, as I explain my dilemma. Why have I struggled with some of these songs? It is not because of any rejection of or lack of appreciation of God's goodness. I think God has been ridiculously good to me, far beyond anything I could ever deserve. But perhaps it's because the word good is so overused in our English language. In some ways, good falls in line with nice, in that the word and the concept behind it seem so greatly overused. Think about it. We say things like, how are you today? Good. How's the wife and kids? Good. How's work? Good. Hey, you seem kind of down today. Everything okay? Good. How was church at North River this week? Good. How was Paul's message? Did he have anything to say? Eh, good. It comes off like, meh, you know? But there are other times when we add a little spice to that designation. I heard you saw Hamilton at the Opera House. How was it? Oh, good. Really good. Uh, how was Tom Hanks and uh, A Man Called Otto? Good. Much better than expected. What did you think of the food at that new restaurant? Oh, that was good. Now, we could go on with this, but I'll get to the point. How are we to understand this repeated line from Genesis chapter 1, where God steps back six times within this chapter and announces that his creative work is good. What does that mean? Is it one of those goods when you're just trying to get people to go away and leave you alone and stop asking questions? Or is there some nuance to this word good that means much, much more? It's interesting when you look at this opening chapter and there are these six references to the word good. We find it in verse 10, as God separates the land from the sea, and it says, and God saw that it was good. Then again in verse 12, as the vegetation and plants begin to grow, it says, and God saw that it was good. 
in verse 18, after fixing the sun, the moon, and the stars in their places, and God saw that it was good. I think that's kind of a big deal, the sun, the moon, and the stars in their places, but no different from the other designations. Then in verse 21, again, and God saw that it was good. In verse 25, when he creates all kinds of animal life, and God saw that it was good. And then in verse 31, after creating human life and taking in all of the fullness that he has created, God steps back. And here the Bible says that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Our topic today is the goodness factor. This is part five of this the Genius of Genesis series, and in this series we've been mining out bedrock principles that are revealed in the opening chapter of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, which provide us with a foundation for understanding God, our world, and our place in it. So here's the question that I have for today. Why does Genesis 1 repeatedly tell us God says that our world is good? And here's the big idea for this morning. I'll get it out right at the beginning. God's declaration of goodness reveals a Lord who continually works for our good, even in a broken world. We need to understand this, and I think one of the reasons why this refrain is repeated again and again, and God saw that it was good, is that we need to be reminded of the goodness of God in the midst of our world because our world is also broken. So let's talk about the goodness factor, finding the good that God declares. Here's the first observation that I make for this week. This goodness is a remarkable self-revelation. Verse 10 says, and God saw that it was good. First time we're introduced to that concept. Last week I mentioned that here we find a God who sees and who watches. This may seem like a very simple observation, yet in itself it is revealing about God. By this point in Genesis, We have in view five waves or five days of creation. And then God steps back. He observes the world and the work of his hands. He sees it all and pronounces that it is good. Again, this statement stands in contrast to the idols of the nations as Moses, either the author or editor of Genesis, is very much aware of the the ten idols that the Egyptian nation worshipped and the idols of the other nations around them. They were carved from wood or stone. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot feel, they cannot speak. But the opening chapter of the Bible lets us know that we are learning about a God who speaks and sees and even expresses emotions in saying, this is good. Now, how is it that we could possibly know something like this? Remember, no human being was there to observe God, stopping to observe his creative work or to hear God speaking about the goodness of his creation. So how do we know this? The skeptical answer would be that this was all made up by Moses. In that case, none of this account would be true. Genesis 1 would simply be a fictional story written to unite gullible or simplistic people. There are many people who believe that about the Bible. In that case, the author of Genesis would be inventing human characteristics for its God. Thus, the Bible writers would simply be following the pattern of all inventive idolaters who ascribe characteristics to the gods that they create. But, such a view would not explain how Genesis, written more than 3,500 years ago, could have anticipated how the Hubble telescope and the Webb telescope have found evidence of the movement of the stars and galaxies as they expand outward, or how this expanding movement points to a beginning. 
Genesis is uncanny with its spot-on accuracy. Such a view cannot explain the survival of the Jewish people throughout the ages despite several attempts by other nations to wipe them off the face of the earth. If all of this is fiction, then Moses becomes the greatest manipulator of all time, deceiving the people of the world's three largest faith movements, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, who all read Genesis. The biblical answer is that we have a self-revealing God who loves and delights in making himself known. This is one of the greatest features that we discover about God. And so Genesis presents a straightforward set of clues that God wants us to ponder. Moses, again, either the author or editor of Genesis and of the first five books of the Bible, encounters a God who speaks, who calls him by name, and who demonstrates his miraculous power on behalf of his people again and again and again. And we are not the first to seek answers to this question about how do we know these things about God? And can we trust them? So the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. He's saying that in some way that every word of Scripture has been superintended by God, even though written by human beings and written through their personalities and their skills, nonetheless, God's Spirit was inspiring these words. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here you get this idea that the Holy Spirit is actively involved in revealing God, even in the words that are written down for us in Scripture. So what, you might ask? Why does this matter? This matters because we naturally have questions about this God that we find in Genesis. And so we naturally wonder, what kind of God is this? Is this a God who can be known? Can I really know Him? Is this a God who is good? Do I want to know Him? And will this be good for my life? Is this a God who cares about us? And are there signs of His caring that will give me hope for life today? So the Bible, and Genesis specifically, present to us a self-revealing God. God's self-revelation in Genesis leads us to probe the rest of the Bible. It raises that curiosity about what we will find. This God takes great interest in the world, in His work, and in all that He provides. This is what Genesis 1 is telling us. He's interested and engaged with our world. He makes Himself known. He made Himself known to prophets who delivered and wrote down words, and then to the apostles. And He makes Himself known to us most clearly through his son, Jesus. Knowing that God is engaged and that he self-reveals leads us toward trusting him. So, so far in this series, we've seen that God alone existed before the beginning, that when God speaks, he speaks with authority and action results, that we find that God is interested, he sees, he observes, he's engaged with our world. And when he stops to observe his creative work, he tells us that the world in which we live is good. So, this goodness is part of God's remarkable self-revelation. 
The goodness we see in the world comes from God. Here's a second observation. This goodness glorifies God. From verses 14 to 19 in chapter 1, here's what we read. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs. If you have your notes out or if you're writing your Bible, circle that word signs. That's important here in this chapter. Signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verses 14 to 19 focus on the two great lights of creation's fourth day or fourth wave, fourth movement of creation. Notice that Moses doesn't use the word sun or moon. He simply calls them great lights. Have you ever wondered why? There's actually a reason why. The sun and the moon were considered to be gods by the Egyptians, and they they worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. And so Moses was taking the focus off of those names that they were given and putting it more on the function that they had. The Egyptians had ten major gods. Each of them uh, were corresponded to by the ten plagues of the Exodus period. We'll cover that at another time. Ultimately, though, God was displaying his superiority over the idol gods of Egypt. God alone is king over his creation. So God stops and sees and pronounces that his work in the skies and in the world and on the land and in the seas is good. The sun and the moon are not objects to be worshipped. As necessary as the sun is to our daily life, the sun is not a god to be bowed down to. Instead, the sun, the moon, and the stars put God's majesty and power on display day after day. This is why Psalm 19 says in the opening verses, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. So here the psalm writer is telling us that the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the skies are speaking to us every day about the glory of God. They declare the glory of God. They reveal it to us day by day so that even a person who can't read, even a person who does not have the Bible, can look at the skies and realize there has to be someone who created these things and put them in place And because these things have such an impact on us, and they are so good in themselves, this God must be good too. Brian Bill, a pastor in Illinois, notes that there are four roles for the sun, the moon, and the stars in this passage. They're part of the separation, the separation of day and night. they They provide signs. Every time we see them in the sky, they are signs of God's glory. They mark seasons. The Earth's orbit around the sun determines the length of each year and provides seasons where we have more or less heat and more or less light. We got a lot less heat yesterday. And then there's a shining factor. Separation, signs, seasons, and shining. The sun, the moon, and the stars shine their light upon the Earth, and, and we see by virtue of the work that they do. 
So this goodness factor is God's remarkable self-revelation. This goodness that we see in the creation around us glorifies God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, this speech is poured forth from the skies every day. And here's the third observation. This is good for human beings too. We read up through verse 25 of chapter 1, but verse 26 becomes the bridge to what we're going to talk about next week, and I, I want to give you just a little bit of insight into that. If we shorten verse 25, it says, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and then explains how he did all that, and then it says, and God saw that it was good, and then verse 26 comes in and says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So here we have three more days or waves of creation. On the fourth day, we get the sun, the moon, and the stars set in their places by God. On the fifth day, all bird life and sea life is created by God. On the sixth day, we learn about God's creation of animal life all over the earth, and we'll see next week about how he creates human beings. Verse 26 adds in God's decision to put human beings here on this earth that he has already been proclaiming in a number of ways is good. It's where we're going next week. But the creation of human life is presented as the final crowning act of God's creative work. It is only at that point that God steps in and says, this is now very good. Soon after, Genesis records that God gave human beings responsibility for cultivating the earth, for naming the animals, and making use of all that God had created. He tells, us the, the, tells the first human beings to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he gives them the plants, the birds, the fish, the animals to rule over and for food as well. When God saw that it was good in verse 25, the only thing left to be created was human life. And so he pronounced that all of this was good. And all this was good for what he was about to do next. The next act of creating human beings to whom he would entrust responsibility. See, part of what that's just showing us is that the world that he'd set in place was good in that it glorifies God, but it's also good in that it was preparing for the life that we live. And even though we are not the center of the story, there's a very profound factor that Genesis is telling us is that God created this world for us, for, for all of the people who inhabit this earth, that everything is uniquely designed and placed for us to maintain life and to sustain life and to enjoy life and to make the most of it. Everything that you and I take for granted every single day that we need for life is provided by God. Take one of these major features away, take the sunlight away, take, take the air that we breathe away, take away gravity, and we could not enjoy any of this. God is so good to have designed it in just such a way that we can live so fully. But here's the best part of this. Not only did God work in the past, but God continually works for our good. If we take that word good and we move forward, you find in the New Testament there's this marvelous verse in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. 
That word good is planted right in there. It takes the mind all the way back to these six repetitions in Genesis chapter 1. No discussion of God's goodness would be complete without Romans 8.28. The Apostle Paul wrote this in his most theological letter, a letter that was written to introduce him and his teaching to the Roman church before he got there. Paul doesn't say that all things in life are good. Some things clearly are not. The brutal death of Tyree Nichols was not good. It strikes at the heart of all who love justice. The horrible loss of life that the Clancy family in Duxbury is going through is not good. It's confusing. It's distressing. It's upsetting. We're all wrapped up in a collective sense of grief over the profound tragedy that this particular family is going through. There is much in our world since the time of Adam and Eve's rebellion that is not good. But Romans 8.28 offers a hopeful, transforming perspective that God works in everything for our good. He works in everything for the good of those who love Him, even though many parts of life are not good. Last week, there was a line in one of our worship songs that said, He takes what the enemy meant for evil and He turns it for good. Now, let's look at that. What does that mean? Well, Christian people are not, or at least should not, be fixated on labeling others as enemies. There might be somebody who's never gone to church and wonders, why do they sing a song like that about enemies? But there are some people who will declare themselves to be your enemy in life because you align yourself with God or align yourself with Jesus, because there are people who are ideologically opposed to the idea of a God to whom we have to account or that Jesus is the singular pathway to enjoying the salvation that God provides. And God has a way of taking even the evil intentions of other people who do want to bring harm and using that for good. It's one of the most astounding realities of the Scriptures. There are two classic examples of this that we find in the Bible. The first is the story of Joseph that comes in the later chapters of Genesis. Joseph's older brothers hate him. He's one of 12 sons. He's the 11th in line. And and there are four moms in this particular very dysfunctional, confusing family. And they sell Joseph as a slave, convince their father that Joseph has been killed by an animal. And Joseph ends up in Egypt, moves from being a slave to being in prison But we discover that God was with Joseph at every turn in life, even in the midst of the prison. And God used Joseph to save the lives of all those brothers and sisters and their families when they come down to Egypt in the midst of a famine and Joseph has risen to a place of prominence. Joseph is the only one they can buy food from. And they don't even realize that the person that they're standing in front of is their younger brother. And Joseph says these amazing words in Genesis 50-20. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And Joseph becomes the key factor that saves the lives of not only his brothers, but all of their families as well. The second classic example of this is the account of Jesus on the cross. The religious rulers in Jerusalem and some Roman officials and ultimately the evil one himself wanted to torture, humiliate, and kill Jesus, and they did. 
But even the death of Jesus played into God's purpose. Instead of death being the end of Jesus, it led to the resurrection by the power of God. And millions and millions of people have placed their faith and trust in the risen Jesus since that day. So, even what the enemy meant for evil has turned out for our good. That is the classic heart of the Christian story. It's the reason why Jesus came. That we serve a God who continually works for our good, even in the darkest chapters of life. So, are you going through a dark time right now? Are you finding that in some way you've been brought to your knees, you've been humbled, you've been hit hard? There are things that are discouraging. Maybe there's even an enemy who wants to take you down. Take heart. You're in the midst of something that God can and will use for his good. He's in the business of taking what the enemy meant for evil and turning it into good over and over again. You're dealing with a disease, okay? It's not good. It's destructive, but God will meet you in the midst of that. You're dealing with an addiction, and it has control over you, okay? You're not in a great place. You're not where you want to be, but God can take this. When you give it over to him, he will use it for good, and he will one day use you to bring others out of that same addiction. You're trapped in a pattern of sin, and right now it brings you shame. You don't want anybody else to know. You wonder, why does God even care about you? Because you feel so low about yourself. Give it over to him, and you will find that he meets you in the midst of that. And rather than counting it against you for the rest of your life, he's going to make your life a trophy story and say, look what I did with her. Look what I did with him. I can do this for you too. Amen. This is our God. And that makes Christians people of the transformative goodness of God. Our faith is rooted in the goodness of a God who created the world uniquely designed to support human life. Our faith is rooted in the goodness of a God who turns evil for good in the midst of brokenness. Our faith is rooted in the goodness of a God who triumphed over evil through the horrible death of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. There is not anything in this world that the world or your enemy can throw at you that God cannot turn around and use for good. That is the heart of Christian faith. Amen. Not how great our faith is, how great our God is, how great His intentions are. In a moment, we're going to do something that's contrary to the way I started off this message. We're going to sing a song about the goodness of God. And by now you know that goodness doesn't mean nice in this context. The goodness of God is wrapped up in the power that we have seen in his intentions for good in your life, even in the midst of your brokenness. Maybe you don't feel like singing about the goodness of God right now because you're wrapped up in how awful the situation you are feeling, sensing, living. But I want you to do something. I want you to muster at least the ability to whisper these words because when you do that, you are echoing faith in the God who can turn around the very situation that is bringing you down. Here are some of the words. The chorus goes, In all my life you have been faithful. In all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. That's a heart cry. 
That's a, that's a decision that says, even in the midst of the mess, even when my emotions aren't there, I will nonetheless acknowledge the goodness of God. I love what the second verse does in this song. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire. Some of you are in the midst of the fire right now. And in the darkest night, you are close like no other. I have known you as a father. I have known you as a friend. And I have lived in the goodness of God. So here's what we're saying this morning. God's declaration of goodness reveals a Lord who continually works for our good, even in a broken world. God, we praise you. We praise you for being so amazingly good. We don't have words that adequately describe your extreme, profound, gracious, generous, life-giving, life-sustaining, life-freeing, life-healing, life-transforming goodness. But together we announce that you are good. Lord, please walk with us this week through the world that is filled with challenges around us and allow us to see every day signs of goodness. And Lord, we offer over to you whatever the junk is that we're holding on to or that is holding us down. And we invite you to turn it into good by the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. In his name we ask. Amen.